Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. Happy New Year, everybody. So pretty much everyone is in Australia by now, and all indications point to 2019 being a great year for tennis. And it's going to be an equally great year for Under Review. We've got exclusive giveaways. Stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out about that. We've got fantastic guests. And as always, we've got the best tennis talk around. So we figured we'd start the year off right, taking a tally of 2018 and looking forward to 2019. There's no one better than this guy to do it. I think he needs no introduction, but the folks at corporate seem to disagree, so here it is. As a player, he beat McEnroe, Sampras, Chang, Becker, and Edberg. He was a world number four. He went on to coach Agassi, Roddick, and Andy Murray. And he's now a cornerstone of ESPN's tennis coverage. He's a Twitter monster who always tells it like it is. Our first repeat guest, Brad Gilbert. Brad's going to tell us about what he saw in 2018, including his assessment of Novak Djokovic's meteoric rise to the top. He's going to share some stories from his glory days playing the Masters and tell us how disappointment comes sometimes in the form of a candy tray. He did it so nice, he's doing it twice. Brad Gilbert, everybody. Nice to see you, buddy. So we're down in the depths of the O2 arena. Right? We're in the bowels of this. We are. They call it the bowels. We're in the basement of the O2. Um, it's the end of the week at the ATP Finals. The last time we met up, we were at the Malibu Racquet Club, and a lot has happened in Malibu since then. There was a mass shooting in Thousand Oaks, and the day after, a fire broke out and spread across the canyon into Malibu, where you live. Let's just get right into it. You know the drill. We do the five-set format, and our first set is the off-the-court report. Let's just talk about what happened. Well, first of all, for Thousand Oaks, it was just absolutely brutal. If you follow me on Twitter, you know how much uh, I detest guns. And you have a simple stance, which is the Australia stance, and I, I tend to share that. Um, and and the then Australia stance being they ban guns and there ain't no shootings. Yeah, and they've obviously had the heavy gun laws in Canada, and they've only had 12 mass shootings since 1885. So, and then. Then we, uh, 24 hours later, we have the fire, which amazingly spread all the way from Thousand Oaks through the canyon to Malibu. Um, and it's just absolutely devastating what's happening with these fires and how quickly they can just erase, you know, one person erase said, a city. One person said to me, you know, there were always fires. It, well, part of the reason that it's more impactful is that there are houses now where there never used to be. Yeah, exactly. A lot more people are living, you know, in, in rural areas or they're living in different parts. But, you know, listen, there's nothing worse than being in a fire. And, and it just And, it just you know, we me. both, Brad lives in Malibu. And, and as you guys know, I have significant ties to that part of the world. So, uh, you know, obviously our thoughts are with all those people. Absolutely. Because that's and a it, bad look out there right yeah, now. Yeah, no, my wife just got back into our place after seven days. And we just have smoke damage and a little ash. And we were really fortunate. But just... So many good people lost their homes, and it just, yeah, it just... It's just terrible. Listen, wildfires are a big issue all over California and maybe over the whole country. If you want to help out with fire relief in California financially, there are a ton of great organizations doing big-time work. 
The one we donate to is the California Community Foundation. They've been around for 15 years and do good work distributing resources to local organizations. You can check them out at calfund.org slash wildfire dash relief dash fund. It's been over a month since those fires, but that devastation lasts for years. And as they say, every little bit helps. Let's get into the tennis. Our second set, it's our on-the-court report. The last time we talked, it was an an advance of the U.S. Open. We're now at the the years over, for all intents and purposes. Um, What is the moral of the story on the men's side? Um, If you go back to Indian Wells in Miami, I probably never saw Djokovic play a worse two matches. Um, Losing first round, Palm Springs, Miami, second round, Monte Carlo. He just was a shadow of himself. But somehow, by the end of the clay court season, started to figure it out once he got Marion Vida back on board. And to be where he is right now, he's back to where he was in 2015, and he's playing an unstoppable form. Um, Before Wimbledon, he was holding serve around 84% of the time. Since the start of Wimbledon, he's been holding at 91% of the time. If Djokovic is holding at 91% of the time, and in three matches so far here in London, he's lost 31 points on his serve. And if he dominates on a serve the way he is, we're about to see exactly the type of domination we saw in 15-16. And I think we're, we're very close to thinking about another Joker slam. Well, how about a real slam? Forget about these other yeah. slams. I don't yeah, talk I mean, about, it, it, by the it, way, I don't talk about other slams. I talk about the real slam, the one that Rod Laver made. Yeah, no, in 69. I mean, it, it's so rare for somebody to do the double. Since 91, I think it's only Courier and, and Djokovic. That's it, who, who started the year with the first two legs of the Grand Slam. Hopefully, we're going to maybe get some youth challenging him next year, Hatchinov. Hopefully, Zverev, what we're seeing from him uh, this week. Um, maybe Sitsipas. Um, and hopefully, Rafa will come back from his injury. Um, and just go but, beat up everybody on yeah, the clay but, for but, the 900th year in a row. Yeah, but for the moment, what I'm seeing from Djokovic, you know, he's like roll tide. He's running downhill, and I'm not sure anybody can handle him the way he's playing at the moment. What about Sasha Zverev? Sasha Zverev looks unstoppable to me. Um, very impressed. Zverev last year here, first serve average, 126. And normally, you know, that's pretty no- normal for him. And then you'll see him hit a few serves, you know, 132, 133. Today, first serve average, 135. Last match, first serve average, 134. He's hitting an easy 141. If he can continue to serve at this pace, because we've never had a monster server that's been really decent off the return and solid off the ground. To me, this is something that Lendl can really build upon in the offseason to really get him to a place where he needs to be. What about Kevin Anderson? I mean, he seemed to kick it into a way higher gear this year. Um, At 32 years old, playing the best tennis of his career. We're seeing Isner at 33 years old play the best tennis career. The biggest improvements that Anderson's made is his return of serve that not only does he get uh, much more returns in play, only Djokovic averages 
hitting the ball deeper in the court on makes than Anderson. So when you'll see Anderson stretch, he gets a lot of length and he tries to crack his returns. And the forehand that sometimes can, you know, come and go has really gotten better as he's gotten older. Um, and I think he has a lot more clarity in what he's doing. And I think that he has a lot of belief that, that he, where he's ranked at six in the world, that he can go higher. I think that he's probably in a good place mentally and maybe his nerves were different at 26. Do you think Brad Stein has been useful? And if so, how? Well, I thought he made big strides last year. Brad Stein, uh, well, uh, uh, coach, coach Jim Courier during a lot of good, a lot of a lot of Jim Courier's good years. I've known Brad Stein since 1980 when I was at Foothill College and he was at Kenyatta College. Um, we were ju at two different junior Brad colleges. Brad Stein was a player. Yeah, he was like, I was playing one. I think he was like maybe seven or eight. And then he went to go to Fresno State. So, but I did know him from then. But he's been he's been a, he's been like a long time road warrior on this yeah, tour. He's a and, good guy, and I and think that he's a top you, guy yeah. in, in coaching that you and, that you've not heard of. And he's done a really good job at probably helping Kevin believe that he can keep getting better. And and as a coach, the one thing I saw him. I don't just I want to tell you I saw him the other day right before he was getting on the court. And Brad was talking to him like he was like a heavyweight champion going into a big fight. You know, it would look like these guys aren't messing around, that's for sure. You, you know, belief. I cut you off. You said as a coach. Yeah, as a coach, you know, when you show that, I call it the power of positive thinking, the belief. And I don't like it when I see coaches all the time celebrating after every point. You see Brad sitting there, you act like, you know what, maybe you're turning inside. But if they look over to you and, and you're not that surprised, then all of a sudden your player thinks that, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I can keep getting better. But because I think that sometimes, too, that you celebrate after wins and, like, there's still, there's still matches to go on in the tournament. Um, and I think, he, you know, he's a good, really, you know, guy that's been around a long time, um, been with some good players, and I think it – at this point in his career, he's probably a really good situation for Kevin to be in. And and it, let's talk about the women this year. It was a crazy year. I mean, it was Svitolina who won the women's masters, correct? She did. Um, but Serena's not there. A lot of different things on the women, right? The yeah, women is I, a f in flux. You have eight different winners of the last eight slams. Hasn't happened since 1937 and 38. And you almost ask yourself, is there a better chance of one of the last eight winning the Aussie Open or a different one? And I'm not even sure. So um, I just think that, that, you know, we're in a situation where whoever gets hot can win. And it's, it, you know, it, and that could be 15 or 20 women. To me, there's not the dominant player. So I think a lot more players play with belief. Um, there's a big difference between one and three in the men's, you know, three to seven, seven to, you know, there, there's drop-offs. You know, people say, oh, it's only between the years. No, there's a lot of skill difference. Uh, in the women's, right now, all of a sudden, you just see somebody who's hot, like Osaka, coming into the open, she barely had won any matches in the summer. Gets hot, takes care of business. Took care of business, man. But if you look at her summer results from Wimbledon to the open, she barely won any matches. That's right. So it's, it's weird how all of a sudden you can come with no form and then all of a sudden, boom. It was like 
uh, the year before Muguruza come into Wimbledon, she barely won any matches, wins Wimbledon. So it's sometimes now about who all of a sudden gets hot. Let's talk about the Serena controversy. I know where you started. Where did you finish? Um, I, I still think the same thing that the umpire could have done a way better job. He needed to tell her before he gave her the, the, yeah, and, the game. It, he, firstly, he didn't communicate to her about the coaching warning. I think when Serena smashed her racket, that's always a warning, but she didn't realize that it had a carryover that a coaching warning then all of a sudden carries over in the code of conduct. So most people say, oh, she should have known it. Okay, whatever. I'm like, he could have communicated a way better job, and I would have loved to seen him at a set and 4-3. It's like you don't call a basketball game in the last two minutes of a game like you do in the first two minutes of the game. I would have liked to seen him say, Serena, knock it off. If you say another word, I'm giving you a game penalty. You would take it any further, I'm going to default you. Now everybody at home would have heard it. Everybody on the court would have heard it. Uh, and so I felt like he did a poor job of communicating with her and trying to defuse the situation. And he never said a word. I thought it was kind of sneaky, passive aggressive. And then all of a sudden game penalty. I would have just liked to seen it play out because I thought Osaka was playing great tennis and she was two games from winning. She was up a set and a break. She was up a set and a break. Let's leave that there. There's more, there's always more to that. But we got, we have time constraints here. Let's leave that there. This is our third set. In our third set, we talk about the player's career. You know, we're here at the Masters. This is, they call it the finals now. I call it the Masters because when I was a kid, my father took me to Madison Square Garden. There, there was McEnroe and there was Borg and there was Vetus and there was, and I want to know, did you play in New York? Yeah, I did. I played in New York three times. And to this day, I still call it the Masters, and every time I do that, every once in a while I'll do it on TV, Greg Sharko will always say, it's, you know, it's the ATP World Final, there's these 1,000, but I... It's the Masters it, it, to us. I think it was the Volvo Masters. It's the Volvo and, Masters, It 100%. was the Masters. Since but hang on a second, when you played it, who was in it? Who was the eight? I mean... It was Lendl. Lendl was in the final every year. I mean, Lendl, Mac. Uh, so the first time I was in it was end of, I think it was, it was weird. They, the, the first time I played it was in 86, and it started the year. It was weird. I think they, it was in January of 86. So the 86, they might have had two. They might have started it in the, at the start of the year and then moved it to the end of the year. Um, uh, and then I, I played it again in 87 and 89. So I was in it three times. I think, uh, you know, um, Becker, Edberg, Lendl, Vilander. Mayotte. Nah, I don't no. think he was in it. So the last, um, so definitely like 87 was Becker, Lendl, Edberg, me. Mats. Mats. I, I know the semi uh, was me, Lendl, Edberg, Vilander. That was a semi Man, in 87. That's a lot of grand slams in you right there. Yeah, I know. I brought it down really bad. And then 89, I think there was quite a few Americans in the in it. I think it was me, Agassi, McEnroe, and might have been Chang made it that year, you know. Yeah. So I, I want to think there was four Americans. Then you had Lendl, Becker, Edberg. Could have been five Americans, and then those guys, Lendl, Becker, Edberg, were one, two, three. 
Did you have good wins? And you, you, you semied. I mean, you had to have some good wins in there, boy. Yeah, I snuck a few good wins. You know, the older you get, the better you used to be. You asked me about like my wins. It's like I, you know, it's like I'm so focused on today or players I coach. I, I even forget about. That's why, like, when I'm on TV. I never talk about myself playing. You don't go back into history, but that's our show's different. This is under review. Um, this isn't. So uh, I think broadcast. I think I, I want to think maybe my record was four and five or something like that in the Masters. Yeah, something like that. That's good, man. Brad Gilbert, Masters uh, player. I played three the Masters times. three times. None of this London final, no. New York final. Masters. It was just the Masters. Moving into our fourth set, this is our 10-ball scramble. Uh, I'm gonna just fire out some different things. You know the drill. You ready? Yep. The Masters. Off-season is right around the corner. Vacation. You know what? It's funny, it's my day, vacation. Now, from coaching Andre, literally the day that the, the Masters ended, then he started training to get ready for Australia. So now that's what modern sports is now. Off season, usually it's time to like really work on your game, work on your body, to you know, really put yourself in position to get ready. It's like a training block for Australia. So it's not like, man, I used to take two, three weeks off, you have a little fun, but tennis has changed. Best win. My best win? It's, it's word well, association, I, I like, man. I know, but it's funny. It's like when you ask me about it, it's like my game doesn't matter anymore. Best win, um, Andre winning the 99 French. Worst loss. In coaching, two of them. I mean, both to peak, gosh darn it. 95 U.S. Open final. Andre was 26-0 and 0 coming in on that summer, and he lost that match, and then... I really thought he was gonna win the 2001 Open, the four tiebreaker, no oh. breaks, both of those matches just, you, you know, I, I remember it more than any of those matches myself. You didn't have like six match points you blew against uh, Lendl uh, or? I had, last time I played Lendl, 4-1 double break in the third, Philly, high volley on top of the net to go 5-1 in the third. Somehow, early in the second set, I knew that I did something to my foot, and I ended up chipping a bone. I was out for like eight weeks after it. Ended up blowing the match, 7-5 and a third. I never played Lendl again, and he was starting to slip. I'm sitting in the locker room with a bag of ice on my foot, and he goes, if I had 110 temperature and I was on my deathbed, I don't lose to you, buddy. We got that one in the, you told us that yeah, story um, the last one. Another tough beat, uh, 89. I was on a 17-match winning streak, and I played at just one Cincy, and I played this stupid exhibition in Wilmington, Delaware, ended up getting stiffed for, and then I ended up getting to New York. Wait, on you didn't get paid. Yeah, I got stiffed. <laughs> I got stiffed, and then I got to New York on Sunday, and my half happened to play on Monday, and they put me on 11 a.m., and I lost five sets first round to Todd Witzkin, and I just, I, I was out of gas. And, but had I got through maybe that first round, maybe it would have been different, how do you, how, I mean, you got stiffed on the, on the gig? Incredible. Got stiffed. W one and only time that ever happened? <laughs> I know, I've got, I, I would say maybe I got stiffed twice in my career. Incredible. That was one of the two. Uh, favorite tournament? It's a good question. I mean, there's, all the slams have special meaning. Come on, favorite tournament, yeah, man. Yeah, but for me, believe it or not, it's just a simple tournament. My favorite tournament was San Francisco because 
The tournament was- Barry McKay's tournament. Yes, where when I was nine years old, I was a ball boy there. And by the time I was 11, not only was I a ball boy, I would put my hand on the net, they paid me five bucks a match, and I would call Let's. Um, where was that played? It started out in the um, East Bay, and they had it, uh, it went from the Berkeley Tennis Club to the Cow Palace. The Cow and, Palace. And then when Famous it, Cow yeah, Palace. And when it went to the Cow Palace, they used to give out these pyramid trophies. And I had lost in the final in 84 to McEnroe. And it was a big moment for me when I was 23 to make my hometown final, um, lose to McEnroe. I finally, 89, get back to the final and win it. They come to give me the trophy and they give me this freaking candy plate. And Volvo's the sponsor and, and, and he's like- What do you like, mean a candy plate? Like some little plate. A little dinky plate. Some little plate. And, <laughs> and, and you, then, wanted, you thought yeah, you were getting and, the pyramid. And, and, and Barry goes, oh, and here's the keys to the car. I'm like, where's the pyramid? You didn't get the pyramid. So I don't get the pyramid. I'm, di I'm disheveled. I got a candy plate. I got, a key, I got a key to a station wagon. My dad was happy about getting that. Um, you handed the keys off to your father. Nine months later, maybe the nicest thing that I ever got, Barry McKay gave me and had it made a replica of the pyramid. And, he, and it says, the trophy that I should have won. So it was probably the nicest gift that I ever received in tennis. That's slick. The pyramid that I should have won, that's what it says on the trophy. So I would say for me, San Francisco, even though it wasn't a huge tournament, but it was my hometown tournament, I won it once, lost the final three times. Favorite court? Fast indoors. Is there a specific one in the world that you have like a favorite court, you love to walk on that court? Like this is a gorgeous, that you have a favorite court? I'm gonna tell you, you know what a favorite court for me is? A dump. A dump is the best place for me. Whenever everybody was whinging that this was the worst place, the worst court, the worst venue, Jesus, it was gonna be a good week for me. When we were at like a really good venue and everything was good, everybody was loving, it's probably gonna be a shitty week for me. So a dump, and I, I probably won about six or seven tournaments in my career. The next year it was gone. So I, I was the cooler. You, cool, you, you, you ended the tournament. Yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, your favorite player. Um, when I was a kid, believe it or not, I don't know why I would say Nastasi. You like Nastasi? Yeah, and then, you know, my number one idol when I was a kid was Sean Connery, you know, James Bond. Yeah. It was like, he was above tennis. Uh, favorite forehand? Now? Probably a tie between Fed and Rafa. I mean, for different shots, but... Both just outrageous results. I always love Lendl's. And that's my Freddy Krueger. I can't say, I mean, if you would ask my era, Lendl had the best forehand by far in my era. His, his pocket was from his toes to above his head. Let me tell you, you Incredible don't want to be on the player. other end of his, yeah, his fear hand. I loved his forehand. But his that great, running forehand. As great as his fear hand was and as great as Pete's running forehand was, so, Fed and Rafa have taken it to a whole nother level. Favorite backhand? Easy. I mean, easy pieces, double A. Favorite serve? I mean, I hate it. I hate it. Just want to punch it. But Pete, I mean, I actually played him a bunch and had to be on the receiving end of it on the coaching. But the guy just had ice water in his veins. And there's been a lot of great servers, but a lot of these big servers never played in the big type matches that Pete did. 
He's maybe one of the only guys I've ever seen that in a big match against Andre would all of a sudden amp it up another five or 10 miles an hour and would serve bigger in a bigger match. Moving into our fifth and final set, we call this King of the Court. If you were the king, how would you do it? Um, I need you, first of all, to give our listeners some clarity on all the team controversies, Davis Cup, Laver Cup, ATP Cup, crowded schedule. I'd like you to explain it, and I'd like you to cure it, if you could, if you were the king. Well, first, I understand that it's uncurable, but yeah, incurable. First of all, we've been talking about this shit for 35 years, you know, but... It's not that different? The, the biggest problem is each one of the slams, the ITF, the ATP, each week on the ATP tour is the most important week, and so you have too many cooks in the kitchen. And I'm not sure that everybody gets in the same room to make the perfect schedule. Um, Davis Cup was a massive deal as a kid. But unfortunately, it's not the same as when we were kids um, and the top players weren't supporting it. So I can't give you an opinion about the new Davis Cup in 2019 till I see how it plays out. And then obviously the ATP is going to start, you know, used to be the World Team Cup in Dusseldorf. So basically this is restarting that in January. Oh, I see. So they're sliding the old World Team Cup. Cup which used to be before the French. So basically that this is kind of the premise of that. And then I think it's, Labor Cup has been a huge hit. But it seems to me, just real quickly, that the ATP, which is the union, they don't want to give up anything. Like, they don't want to take well, a week off the board, man. Okay, the Davis Cup, they, they're thinking the players play too much. So now they're going to do it in one week. But then all of a sudden, the other weeks that there were, they want those weeks. They're going to have, like, some 64th draw, you know, right after the Open, maybe against Labor Cup, $10 million to the winner. They want to have some huge mixed doubles. From, and so the ITF doesn't want to give up those weeks. They're not giving those weeks back to the ATP. They're not giving them off weeks. All right, so you're the king. What's the solution? Um... The solution is we get the heads of the ATP, ITF, each one of the slams, and you get in the room and you actually get a blank calendar and say, we've been talking about this for 35 years. Let's actually sit down here and make a legitimate... But the problem is that some the tournament directors are going to get yeah, sliced and diced. Exactly. No one's going to give so it up. So that's the problem. Is right. it's, it's a It's a... You know, it's like some math equation that maybe takes 20 years, you know, the guy on the chugboard to, to fill it out, like some super genius. Good luck getting a super genius to, to get all these people to make concessions. Every, it took for a million years to get an extra week between the French and Wimbledon. You know, in a perfect world, it would be great if Australia was a couple of weeks later and then we had more time to start the season. So basically, we don't just go right into the year with the major. What happens to Asia? Asia seems like a real problem. It's not a problem for women's tennis. They seem to be playing there all the time. My man, there's no one in the seats. I see it. There's no one there. And they, that seems to be the one that clogs the schedule. You, you know, Beijing, I, Shanghai, Listen, Shenzhen. I played play like 35 tournaments a year. So I'd be the worst person to ask, man. I would like, listen, you got the nine uh, master series. You got a few 500s. You got a few majors. I mean... A lot of these guys are playing 18 to 20 tournaments max. Wait, so you played 35 and some of these, like, who, like who's an example of someone who's playing 18? I mean, like, um, 
Because I noticed today, like, Rogers, well, Rogers doesn't play the clay. No. His record for the year was, like, 48 and 9. Yeah, I mean, I mean wait, wait. Fa- uh, Rafa's only lost four times this year. So, listen, every player is different on how their schedule needs to but be. But 48 and 9, my point is, is to be a, a top three guy in the world. That's not a lot of matches. No. It, 57 it, it, matches, not a lot of matches. Well, there's a lot of quality in there. He did some winning. For these top guys, the four majors are the only thing that counts. And it's how you peak to be ready for those events. I didn't understand as a player the word peak. I was like, what the hell does that mean? I mean, like, every week was a big week for me. So when I started coaching Andre, he started telling me about seven weeks out, I got to be ready for New York. I got to be ready for one. And I'm like, what? He actually changed my philosophy massively. And I wish I had maybe learned what he had actually taught me about this understanding that, ah, you can actually overplay, you can overtrain, you can actually be tired coming into the tournament and you could screw yourself up. I had no knowledge of that. But when I started coaching Andre, his emphasis on how am I gonna win majors? So that actually immediately changed my mindset and, and then all of a sudden I started seeing it from his perspective. Okay, I get it. And I never got that before. Lessons from Andre Agassi, always welcome here on our show. Uh, My man, thank you as always. Enjoy the holidays. Keep safe, buddy. And we'll talk to you soon. You are released. So while we still have your attention, here's the deal with the giveaway. Our good friends at the Invesco series have donated two VIP packages to their upcoming event January 26th at the Newport Beach Tennis Club. If you want to try to return Andy Roddick's serve or maybe get a point off of Tommy Haas as well as Marty Fish and James Blake, you can practice with these guys and then watch them play. It's a great event. We're excited to offer the opportunity to our fans. So all you got to do to enter is contact us via email or spread the word about us. Tag us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Or if you're too tired after a long day on the courts, just retweet or repost one of our posts and we'll automatically enter you to win. Info at underreviewtennis.com is our email. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Good luck and tell your friends. Huge thank you to Brad Gilbert and our friends at the ATP. I want to thank everyone for listening and for spreading the word. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us. That is the name of the game. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. And kids, if someone asks you to play some random EXO, get your money up front. Don't get stiffed like Brad. We'll be back before you know it with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.